0: It was a tragedy of epic proportions. Josh Hilberling was a young veteran and soon to be a new father with his whole life ahead of him when he died after plummeting out of the window of the 25th floor condo he shared with his pregnant wife, Amber. But this wasn't just a tragic accident. The shocking twist was that these seemingly picture-perfect newlyweds had lots of dark secrets. And even though the couple looked flawless on the outside, they both had hidden demons and an incredibly tumultuous relationship. That came to a head that fateful day in 2013. After a heated argument, it was Josh's new bride Amber who gave him that fatal push, causing him to tumble through their living room window to his untimely death. Amber insisted she never meant to kill Josh, she loved him. She said she shoved her husband in self-defense, but unfortunately for Amber, a jury didn't agree. And Amber was sentenced to 25 years in prison. As the prison gates locked behind Amber, it seemed to signify the end of this tragic tale. Amber's newborn son, Levi, would now grow up with a dead father and a mother he could only see behind bars. But what no one knew in that moment was that Amber's story was far from over as they visited their daughter in prison for a crime they believe she did not commit. Never in their wildest nightmares did Amber's family think things could actually get worse. But worse they got. Amber's story was about to take one more terrifying and deadly turn. Three and a half years after her high-profile murder case, three and a half years that would have seen her home with her child had she taken a plea agreement, Amber, who was just 25 years old, was found dead in her prison cell. Another inmate discovered the beautiful brunette hanging from her bunk bed. The cord of a curling iron wrapped tightly around her neck. Officials and medics desperately tried to save her, but it was too late. Just 15 minutes later, Amber was declared dead. It was horrifyingly ironic. Amber was a young woman who had been known for her beauty and her long, flowing, light brown hair. Her family believed Amber should have been free, living a normal life, a life like any other 25-year-old woman. Amber should have been curling that beautiful long hair to pose for a picture with her son on his first day of nursery school, or to go on a date with her handsome husband. But instead, according to prison officials, she was using the beauty tool to take her own life as her husband lay in a grave and she sat rotting behind bars for a crime she claimed she did not intend to commit. An autopsy report ruled Amber's death a suicide. And it was time for the second part of her parents' nightmare to begin. A suicide ruling did make sense. It was plausible that Amber never got over the guilt she felt after unintentionally causing her husband's death as her 25-year sentence loomed endlessly before her. But Amber's family says they do not believe, not for one second, that this was a suicide. They believe something much more sinister occurred. They believe that while Josh's death was in fact an accident, that this was a murder. You're listening to Beautiful Victim or Killer Wife, Mystery and Murder, analysis by dr phil
1: the first page of a book never tells the full story and those news alerts and headlines like the ones we get on our phones don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about stories are like people multi-layered and complex it takes some digging to find the truth but when we find it it can change our world We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, Essential Television.
0: The day that changed Amber's family's life forever started with a chilling phone call. Before Amber's family took this call, they had hope, they had fight, they had faith that one day their daughter Amber would be set free and vindicated. Then in one moment, along with Amber, all hope was dead. It was a phone call that Josh's parents knew all too well. A devastating phone call they themselves had received just a little over five years before. It is a phone call no parent ever wants to hear. Rhonda would be told on the phone simply, bluntly, coldly, she is dead. But that was all they were told, not one detail more before they say the prison hung up the phone and ended the call. And the bizarre and suspicious way in which they were notified of Amber's death immediately set off alarm bells. Amber's parents claimed they both had their cell phones listed as emergency numbers for the Department of Corrections to call if anything happened. But instead, the prison called their work numbers and simply left a message saying, call back immediately. Rhonda was confused and frankly frightened as she dialed the prison back. She had already been through the nightmare of a guilty verdict, a failed appeal, and the adjustment to a day-to-day life with her daughter behind bars. She had a sick feeling that this would be the start of her next nightmare, and the news was not delivered to her in a way that made any sense.
1: So I call and I get hung up on. They wouldn't talk to me.
0: Well, I call asking whoever
2: the operator was, said that we just got a phone call, needed, we needed to call back, and he said, I have no idea who made that phone call. You're just going to have to wait till they call you back.
1: And then they would transfer us, and then that line would go to a voice line, and so I just kept trying. And then finally someone answered the phone, and I still don't know who it was, and they uttered three words. She is dead. Click.
0: Rhonda just dropped to the floor. She screamed at the top of her lungs. Amber's son, Levi, came over to his grandma and was terribly worried and confused. He didn't know what was wrong. Rhonda sent a text to her husband, Brian, at his office. Amber is dead. Come home. Amber's mother thought this had to be a mistake or even a cruel joke. There was no way her daughter was dead. And that's how the prison chose to inform her? At this point, Rhonda was holding on to hope for dear life, that there had been some bizarre mistake. Maybe Amber was just hurt or in trouble. As any mother would, Rhonda became desperate, believing in her heart and soul that if she could just get to her child, she could somehow save her. She had no idea that it was way too late. Amber was in fact dead, and it would be an excruciating amount of time before she would ever get any answers. For eight hours, Rhonda and Brian tried everything to find out what was going on, to get any details at all. They called every number they could find, but they got nowhere. They kept calling the prison, but still no answers. Can you even imagine as a parent how excruciating this would be? You've been told that your child is dead and you can't get answers. No one picks up the phone. Nobody knows anything. Rhonda was beside herself.
1: They didn't tell us how she died. It was just, she's dead. She is dead. And so I called until two o'clock that morning. They still didn't they talk They still to wouldn't
2: talk. I finally got through, I asked to speak to someone in medical and the only thing I got was we're calling it a suicide. He wouldn't give how, what happened, any details whatsoever.
0: They
1: I told me to watch the news.
0: And so Rhonda took their advice and turned on the news. And what she learned, horrified her and for her to hear it not from a prison official but from these reports like everyone else it was so impersonal it was so detached it was heartbreaking breaking news we have now confirmed a Tulsa woman convicted of pushing her husband out of that window has died while in custody
1: we have confirmed this morning that Hilberling killed herself at the Mabel Bassett Correctional Facility in McLeod on Monday. A source inside Mabel Bassett tells us that she was found hanging in her cell at 5.30 Monday evening. She had served around three years of the 25-year sentence and leaves behind a little boy.
0: Reports about Amber's apparent suicide continued to be splashed across the headlines in the evening news. And that's how Rhonda and Brian had to piece together what happened to their beloved daughter. The news of her death had people who had followed Amber's high-profile case buzzing. Not only were Rhonda and Brian dealing with the incredible shock and loss, but they were seeing horrible posts on social media and in news article comments celebrating, celebrating Amber's death. One of the most hurtful, a post that read, and I quote, ding dong the witch is dead she finally hung herself 25 years but she chose life however there were people who were surprisingly sympathetic and handled the situation with grace josh's parents wrote quote we heard that amber hilberling hung herself in prison this evening we know how it feels to lose a child I wouldn't wish that on anyone. It's something no parent should have to experience. Condolences to those who loved her. End quote. In the midst of the storm were Amber's parents. They were in complete shock. But they were determined to protect Levi. And they were also determined to find out the truth. They could not wrap their heads around the fact that Amber would do this they believed in their hearts she would never leave her young son. And then things started happening that only fueled their suspicions even further. People from inside the walls of the prison where Amber took her last breath were reaching out to them, claiming to have secrets and information. Amber's parents started to wonder if there was a sinister reason The prison had delayed giving them information about Amber's death. Were they trying to buy time to come up with a story to cover up what had really happened? Now, I want to be very clear here. There is no indication or proof that this prison or any of its employees did anything wrong or participated in any kind of a cover-up. There's no concrete evidence that Amber's death was anything other than a suicide. But what I'm telling you is what Amber's family believes. And they believe it very strongly. They claim that inmates who knew Amber as well as anonymous guards began feeding them some seriously troubling information. Information that to Rhonda and Brian started to really have them questioning if something dark had happened to their daughter behind those locked prison gates.
1: We got actual word from a guard that worked there that said the treatment that goes on in that place, that we better investigate. That was from an actual guard that quit because she couldn't, she could not believe this is our, our, our system. I don't take the prison's word for anything that they've ever done in five years.
0: Hearing that from a former guard, that something could be going on here, fueled Amber's parents even further. They were determined to discover the truth about what happened. They reached out for me to help as they questioned if Amber really committed suicide. They knew I knew the case and that I knew Amber, and more importantly, they knew I had observed Amber's state of mind in the time before her death. And I do agree with them and their claim that they just didn't see Amber as having a suicidal mindset, that she had hope for her future. I saw that hope firsthand, but I needed to find out more about Amber's state of mind in the days before her alleged suicide, because certainly something could have changed in the time that passed. I know that when working with grieving families, sometimes it's just too difficult to accept that a loved one took their own life. It can be easier to focus on taking on a fight for justice instead of accepting that someone intentionally killed themselves with seemingly no warning signs. It's so difficult because it's a personal failure in the minds of the loved ones. They feel like, what did I do? What did I fail to do? What did I fail to see? If I'd been a better mother, a better father, a better brother, a better sister, a better husband, a better wife, then I could have inspired them to want to stay alive. I failed them. I let them down. And that's so painful to admit. It's so painful to even consider that they can't wrap their mind around it. Their perceptual defenses won't admit it into consciousness, and so it's so much easier to look for another explanation so they don't have to admit or take on the burden of feeling like they somehow have failed their loved one. So it's not unusual for families to reject suicide as a first explanation and look for some other reason to explain the death. I didn't have the answer at this point, but one thing I did know for sure was that Amber's family deserved answers, whatever they may be. Amber's parents believed that the story they were being told just didn't make sense. They say it all didn't add up for several reasons. First of all, the time of day when Amber supposedly wrapped a cord around her neck and tied it to her bunk bed, asphyxiating herself, was a time of day when she shouldn't have been alone. It was a social time, a time when many people should have been around. Now, life behind prison bars is nothing if not incredibly structured. When you're dealing with inmates and criminals, things need to run like clockwork. Prison officials don't like things to go off the clock. They don't like things to get out of pattern. So it should be very predictable where inmates are and what they're doing at a given time. You should be able to set your watch by it. Amber supposedly took her life at 5.30 p.m. and this was a gathering time. Inmates and guards were moving about everywhere. It would not have been a time Amber would expect to go unseen in her cell. This was a time that would be high traffic, high interaction. This would not be a time when you could hang yourself and go unnoticed. Secondly, there are cameras positioned everywhere throughout the prison where Amber's death took place. Yet, this supposedly happened to be in one of the few areas not recorded. Even though she was in her cell where there would be no cameras, surely there should be footage of the surrounding area that could show any type of potential suspicious behavior or comings and goings. Amber's family believes no one has studied that footage. No one has looked to see was she alone or did someone or some group enter her cell at the time her life was ended. Maybe that's available on tape, maybe it's not. They believe it hasn't been looked into. And lastly, and most importantly, as I mentioned, Amber's state of mind at the time of her death. It wasn't that long ago, I was sitting right in front of her in that very facility. And at the end of our conversation, Amber was not forlorn. Amber was not defeated. Amber was not resigned to 25 years in prison. She was excited, she had hope. She had so much to live for, and her dream of getting back to Levi was still a possibility. She told me straight up, she had to live for her son. She recognized his father was gone, that she was his anchor. She was his family. She was his parent. Taking her life meant she had to make the conscious decision to abandon that boy and leave him without a parent. It's hard for me to imagine her coming to that conclusion. Rhonda would also talk to Amber every day on the phone. She would send Amber a daily picture of Levi. Brian said they would also bring Levi to the prison over 20 times a year. Now, think about that. That's almost twice a month. They would bring him for holidays and special visit days. She was not disconnected from this child. Rhonda and Brian were currently raising Levi, but they weren't shielding him from Amber in any way. To Levi, prison was mommy's house, and she was so pretty that she needed guards to protect her. Amber's family insist she was not suicidal. So who is suicidal? What kind of mindset do suicidal people have? Well, number one, they tend to believe that they are a burden. They tend to believe they are a burden to those in their family, those loved ones, friends. They believe they're a burden and that those people would just be better off if they weren't there. They're people that tend to start taking high-risk behaviors because they don't value themselves. They're people that are depressed. And this old adage that people that talk about suicide don't do it is a myth. That's not true. People that talk about suicide often attempt suicide. There are people that don't have any forward thinking. You never hear them talk about tomorrow or next week or next month. They just don't have future thinking because they don't plan to be here. And none of these things were present in Amber's persona. She was looking forward. She was hopeful about the future. She did have something to live for. She didn't make noises about being a burden, and she wasn't giving a voice to taking her own life. So to say this came out of the blue would be a pretty accurate description. Was she happy about being in prison? Of course not. Did she like the idea that she was facing a potential long stretch? No, of course not. But she had a supportive family and a loving son, and those are counterbalancing factors to being in prison.
1: I knew Amber was sad, but Amber was sad the entire time she was there. She was an innocent girl in prison and did not know how to play this game, what she used to call play the game. Mom, I I don't know how to do this. And so to say that she wasn't sad, of course she's sad. She's wrongly accused of murdering her husband. She's away from her child, but she, she wasn't suicidal.
2: She had never talked about about that and you know just recently the night before talking on the phone the whole conversation she was talking about things happening in the future and what Levi was going to be on Halloween and you know if he was going to be Batman she was going to be Robin and look forward to seeing the pictures
0: so as you can see the night before Amber's death she was on the phone with Levi and she was talking about the future Some reports stated that Amber had recently gotten into some trouble in prison and that her punishment was no visitation for 90 days, which would include Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. But would this bad news be enough for Amber to kill herself over? Her family says no. They do not believe Amber would ever take her own life without saying some type of goodbye or writing Levi a note telling him she loved him. Amber was writing letters to her son saying things like, I can promise you that your mama has enough love for you that you will never go without. And when you miss your daddy one day and feel alone, I will do all I can to remind you that he is always with you. It makes mommy almost burst when you are so close to me and I can't touch you. Soon, baby, soon, we are almost there. God knows this is almost over and then we can be together again these are not the statements of someone who is checking out or feeling like they are a burden on everyone they love and amber also wrote another letter that her parents believe further proves she had no intention or thought of ending her life it could be the most important letter amber ever wrote in her life and could go a long way in proving what her family believes that she did not take her own life just 24 hours before she died amber wrote a letter to a local news station She sent it, and in an eerie twist, the letter arrived just one day after Amber's death. It would not be open for four more days. The letter was addressed to KTUL, Tulsa's Channel 8 executive producer. When the letter arrived at the station, no one could believe it when they saw Amber's name and the date of October 23, 2016. They all knew that was the day before Amber died. The anticipation in the room was palpable. Did this letter hold answers to what really happened to Amber in that jail cell? Opening it was like receiving a letter from a ghost. It was truly a letter from beyond the grave. What was written inside was simple but incredibly telling. Amber's note was a response to a request the station had put in to interview her behind bars. Amber replied that she was willing to do the interview, despite some reservations. Her written words that were the most spine-tingling, Amber wrote she would give another interview, quote, because I can't let go of the hope that using my own voice in conversations about my own life will be the one and only chance I have to change the circumstances of my own reality. So just one day before Amber allegedly took her own life, she wrote a letter about her hope for the future. That clue meant more than anything else to Amber's devastated family. Let me talk about that again. She says, I can't let go of the hope that using my own voice about my own life can change my own reality. That's self-determination, it's forward thinking, and it's hopeful thinking. She's taking accountability. She's saying, I have to do this. It's my voice, my reality, my future. She's not saying, I'm sitting here waiting for my family to spend all of their money and all their time to get me out. She's not setting herself up as a burden. She's saying, This is up to me. I've got to get me out of here. My own voice. She's not seeing herself as a burden. She's putting this on herself. But while all of this certainly cast doubt on the ruling that Amber had taken her own life, there were also things that did indicate Amber was a woman in distress, a woman that was, well, cracking under the pressure. A former Tulsa County detention officer claimed she was not surprised at all when she heard Amber had hanged herself in prison. Regina Striplin described how Amber often made dark statements like, I have to live with, that I killed my husband, and statements like, I'm going to have to tell my son someday that I killed his father. She also said Amber had some friends behind bars, but she also had a lot of enemies. She thought Amber had given up, saying, quote, her appeal didn't go through, and I think she gave up, and I think she did exactly what she told me she would do. She said she would die trying. This story about Amber's dark statements would be picked up and reported in the news again and again. And it did push a certain narrative about Amber, the narrative that she was suicidal. But Amber's parents say this guard didn't even interact with Amber after she was found guilty. Any talks they had took place before she was sent to prison for 25 years. So it was definitely being taken out of context. Also painting a picture of a woman in distress were some things found in Amber's autopsy. According to the medical examiner, Amber had scars on her arms and wrist, which indicated she had been self-harming, that she had been cutting behind bars. We're not talking about just one or two scratch marks. Amber had so many scars on her arms that she needed long sleeves for her funeral. Self-harm in the form of cutting is not necessarily a prelude to suicide. Often when people feel numb, often when people feel like they just don't have a connection to their life, often when people are feeling a dull, relentless pain, they will cut themselves to break the cycle, to feel something different. And oftentimes they report that it works in the short term, that it breaks the cycle of depression, that it breaks the anxiety in the moment Obviously, it isn't healthy and it doesn't work because they keep having to go back and do it again and again and again. But it's not necessarily a gateway to suicide. Amber was also taking drugs behind bars. Meth was found in her bloodstream at the time of her death. But despite the cuts found in the autopsy and the drugs in her system, her parents still didn't trust what they were being told. And they had good reason. Remember, Brian was a doctor and Rhonda was a nurse. So they knew many people in the medical field and they wanted a medical examiner who they trusted to be present. To vouch that everything they were being told was true, they asked for this person to be present. They wanted an independent physician in the room during the autopsy. The request was denied.
2: We know a medical examiner in Tulsa and he had talked to the medical examiner in Oklahoma City, requesting from us that he be present during the autopsy.
1: A second opinion.
2: To be present at that first autopsy, and they denied him, yeah. even though he specifically said what the statute was. And then he contacted the attorney
1: general,
2: attorney general, who, according to the medical examiner, also
0: denied his access. They didn't give a reason.
1: She said on the phone, she said, well, I wouldn't want
0: someone watching me do my job. The official autopsy report stated probable cause of death was asphyxia, hanging, and the manner of death, suicide. According to the document, decedent found partly suspended by the neck with electrical cord ligature per scene investigation, circumferential linear abrasion of the upper neck consistent with ligature mark. Amber sternum was also reported as fractured and it was said to have happened during resuscitation efforts. Plus, defibrillator electrodes were still attached to her body when the autopsy began. Amber's neck was also badly damaged, and that, along with the methamphetamine in her blood and the scars on her wrist, the autopsy seemed to paint a picture of suicide. However, the examiner did make note of scratch marks on the left side of Amber's neck and abrasions on the right side as well as a red-purple bruise on her right jaw. Could those marks be the clue Amber's parents were looking for? Were the scratch marks on her neck of her own doing, while desperately trying to claw her fingers under a cord being choked around her neck? Did Amber receive that red-purple bruise from the hands of another or hurting her while she fought for her life? Could her fractured sternum have come from a violent blow of some object to her chest, as opposed to the result of failed CPR? Rhonda first saw her daughter's body five days after Amber was found dead. She says Amber didn't look a thing like herself. Rhonda would describe it as the most painful thing I've ever done in my life. Not only did Amber need these long sleeves for the scars, but the severe damage around her throat would require a turtleneck as she later lay in her coffin. Rhonda has never stopped wondering, were those bruises from the hands of Amber or some other unknown person? A huge question remained. If Amber had not killed herself, as her family so vehemently believes, then who did? Who wanted Amber dead and why? Did she have enemies behind bars? Amber's parents say her celebrity status did cause friction with other inmates. She had just recently participated in a documentary and the constant media attention did not win her many friends among her fellow convicts.
1: She started getting all this flack and they started making names for her because they thought she was above the rules because she got special privileges and then channels. You know, she got wrote every week when news stations wanted to do interviews with her.
0: Amber also told people she was terrified by the horrifying nightmare she was having in prison. Seeing Josh's body crumpled and broken on the ground, a vision no wife should ever have to see. And Amber was reliving it in flashbacks. Lack of sleep and terrifying dreams were not helping Amber's mental state. Rhonda believed Amber had an extreme case of PTSD and was not receiving treatment for it. Rhonda made a shocking claim that not only was Amber not being treated for her PTSD and grief, but some of the guards were actually making it worse by mentally torturing her about Josh's death. Rhonda claimed the guards would say, Hey, don't get too close to the glass, Hilberling. Brian also claims an anonymous person also told them that they had witnessed Amber wearing a dog muzzle in the prison yard. What was going on in this prison? Was Amber just another inmate struggling to get by and it all became too much? Her parents claim it was more than that. They believe there were people out to get her. Could the other inmates' disdain for her have been a motive? But then why the cover-up? One could argue that no prison wants to be the one that allows a murder to be committed on their watch, but no one was coming forward with any clues about someone who hated Amber so much they would kill her with everyone watching. These questions remained, and they haunted Amber's parents for years. And then finally, there was movement. A cryptic message was posted on a Facebook page created to remember Amber. The beginning of the message said, posted by a friend. This friend claimed to know what happened to Amber and they made an extreme accusation. The friend posted Amber was murdered in cold blood by another inmate and there was an elaborate plan to cover it up and make it look like suicide. She even named the inmate's name. We're just going to refer to this person as inmate as she is not a suspect and is not able to respond to these claims or defend herself. The Chilling Post read, Oklahoma Department of Corrections and Mabel Bassett Correctional Center are responsible for covering up the murder of Amber Hibberling and making it look like a suicide. Amber was murdered by an inmate. Hours before Amber was found hanging in her cell, the inmate, who is doing a life sentence, told Amber to go kill herself. The inmate was housed in a separate block than Amber and was not allowed in her pod. However, guards allowed it anyways. The inmate is in prison for strangling her girlfriend over 20 years ago. Amber was found hanging by the cord of her hair straightener. Her body wasn't removed from her cell for hours. She was left there so long that the prison's internal affairs department could get to the murder scene before the medical examiner. There were claw marks on Amber's neck where she tried to fight off her attacker and remove the cord. Amber was working with Dr. Phil and had interviews coming up with the local news station, KJRH. The prison did not want the world to know an inmate killed another inmate, and they let it happen and did nothing about it. Since Amber's case was so high profile, they had to cover up what they let happen. The warden of the prison and several guards ate McDonald's and laughed about her murder, all while Amber's body was still hanging. It doesn't matter if you believe Amber deserves to be in prison or not. Her seven-year-old son deserves to know his mommy didn't choose to leave him. Her life was taken from her, and I will spend my life trying to prove it. End of post. Now, before we say anything more, it's very important to know that to this day, no one has brought any real evidence forward to show that anyone at the Mabel Bassett Correctional Facility acted in or later participated in a cover-up. This is all just coming from an unverified Facebook post. There could be absolutely no truth to it at all, but it was certainly enough for Amber's family to take and run with it in their minds. It proved their theory that their daughter was murdered. Back in 2016, the Communications Director for the Oklahoma Department of Corrections, Terry Watkins, addressed the allegations that the prison had acted inappropriately. She adamantly denied that Amber was abused by the staff at Mabel Bassett in McLeod, Oklahoma, and said every individual in their custody is treated with respect and care. She also denied there was any cover-up in connection with Amber's death. Again, this is only a Facebook post and an accusation made without any evidence. So for now, it must be viewed as just that. It could be fake or completely made up. And until there is evidence, Amber's death remains ruled a suicide. Amber now rests in Calvary Cemetery in Tulsa. And to this day, her mother Rhonda believes someone has gotten away with murder. We spoke to her just a few days ago, and she said her focus is not just justice for Amber, but for helping Levi, who is now struggling as he is old enough to understand the tragic Romeo and Juliet story of his parents. When we spoke to her about their frustration over the lack of answers in Amber's death, Amber's mother's chilling last words to us were, and I quote, "...the blood of Amber is on many hands." And we will never stop telling the world the true story. So what do you think? I'm glad you've taken this journey with me, and I very much want to hear from you. And if you know something about this story, we most certainly want to hear from you. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Phil.